Koinonia, Christian Fellowship, Communion with God and with Fellow Christians. Koinonia, an association of people who share common beliefs and activities. This is Koinonia. This is Community. I'm Tom Brown, and your host today, Pastor Mark Buckley. Welcome to Koinonia. I'm Mark Buckley. With me in the studio is George Bellis. George has been a missionary in Turkey and the Kurdistan. Um, He's a man that I think you're going to really enjoy getting to know. George, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Um, George, why don't you start way back when you first started following Jesus and tell us what uh, drew you into the kingdom. Wow. So, let's see, 1983, I had just gotten out of the military. I'm a veteran. I was in the military for three years before that. I was um, from here in the Valley. So, I'm a, I'm a native. Mm-hmm. I've been here since the 1880s. Um, parents got divorced when I, when I was 13 and grew up in a pretty dysfunctional situation here here. And um, so as soon as I got out of high school, immediately I, I uh, went to college, partied my way out of college, went in the military, uh, just signed up to be with the 1st Battalion Rangers, and lived like a madman for three years. <laughs> and then I went back to college. And so was, you were in the Rangers, huh? Yeah, 1st Battalion, 75th Was Infantry. it pretty intense training? Oh, yeah. Yeah, not much sleep, less food, mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of Lots of walking, mm-hmm. lots of jumping at airplanes. So, and now at fifty-seven, I feel all the <laughs> feel some all of the, the bad landings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. So after developing a pretty high tolerance for pain and alcohol, I went to college again and um, tried to pick up on a Christian girl in my English class who uh, shared the gospel with me, mm-hmm. and ended up uh, praying to receive Christ. Wonderful. Yeah. So then, um, she was just boldly sharing Jesus, huh? Yep. And uh, her and her husband have been missionaries in Mongolia for holy cow, twenty something years. Uh-huh. We just had dinner with them there, home on furlough. Wonderful. So, yeah. So then, um, I'm kind of like the all on, all off personality. So mm-hmm. I got very involved in the ministry there uh, at NAU with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, and very involved in my local church, and um, felt early on that. I was called to go overseas. Um, I've sp- even BC days, I spent a fair amount of time outside of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, grandparents had retired in Mexico, so I always was going down there every summer. And then my last six months in the military, I was um, I worked security for a uh, an intelligence group, and I lived in the Panama, and I flew the Latin American countries every couple of days. And um, so I'd been out of the country quite a bit, and then I really felt the need to to go back overseas because I really saw a need there. So because um, at that time this is like the early '80s, and Honduras and Nicaragua and the whole all that stuff was going on with all the um, the Contras and everybody like that, huh? Yeah, and the Soviets were definitely supporting the um, the guerrilla movement as well as the Cubans and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it was. Um, I saw really abject poverty and a lot of people just, you know, they were, you know, just in the dark. So then um, uh, at these different conferences we, go, we would go to, uh, they had different recruiting stalls for, for mission trips. So my first mission trip, I went to the Philippines and 
and uh, worked on a team that started a couple of new campus ministries. So it's just like a lot of random evangelism, welcome to people, starting relationship, sharing the gospel with them, lead them to Christ. And we started a couple of campus ministries that summer. So it's like a lot of good hands-on kind of ministry early on in my life. Wonderful. My guest is George Bellis. George became a missionary to Turkey and to the Kurds, and he's got some very innovative mission experiences that I I think you're going to enjoy hearing. I'm Mark Buckley from Living Stream. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Koinonia. I'm Mark Buckley from Living Streams. With me in the studio is George Bellis. George has been a missionary in Turkey and Kurdistan and in many interesting places. George, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in ministry to Turkey. Well, when I was a college student at a, uh, at a, at a ministry conference, there were various stalls that had various that had different countries that um, Campus Crusade did outreach in, and one of them was Turkey. And I talked to them about it and just saw the great need in Turkey. Um, at that point, I think there were like 500 believers, and the population was about 60 million. Mm-hmm. And now it's a little better. It's like 75, population 75 million. There's like 5,000 believers in Turkey. That's it, really, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, is that called counting Orthodox, too, or is it just evangelicals? That would be evangelicals. There's not, even among the Orthodox and the Catholics, there's not that many left. Most of them will get asylum and go to Europe. Really? Or come to the States, yeah. And it was the um, headquarters of Orthodoxy at one time, right? Constantinople? Yes. The Greek, uh, the Greek Orthodox patriarch is still in Istanbul. They don't give up that, they don't give mm. up that position. And then the, there's an Ar- Armenian Orthodox patriarch who's also still in Istanbul. But they just don't have many followers, huh? Right. Did they get persecuted too, the followers? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, One of the first places I began to do outreach at in Turkey was uh, a a Syriani Orthodox church in uh, southeastern Turkey in Diyarbakir, which is in Kurdistan. And, um, yeah, you, you regularly get hit in the back of the head with stones as you're walking up going to the church and stuff like that. And that was a pretty common experience for the believers there and stuff. Threatened to be killed or, you know, stuff like that. What a grief, huh? Yeah. And it's not just idle threats sometimes, right? Um, I think the last time somebody got martyred was like, when were we there? It's probably been 10 years. Three guys got their necks cut. They opened a Bible bookstore in um, a city north in, in, in Malatya. And they were murdered about 10 years ago. Okay, so they were actually selling Bibles, and that's... Yeah, yeah the, the, the legal system says you can do one thing, but practically speaking, because Turkey's trying to get into the European Union, so they're trying to upgrade their legal system, but the popular culture, which is Islamic, mm-hmm. says, no, this is bad. And so they, they, they play hardball. 
What percentage of the people in Turkey are actually committed to Islam versus just culturally Muslim? Um, a lot more now than when I first went, and I would say probably now you're looking at about 80 to 85 percent of the of the country is are hardcore believers. Really, that much? Yeah, it's That's it's pretty ch- significant. Isn't in the it? twenty in the twenty plus years we've been involved in Turkey, it's gone from being probably the most moderate Muslim country to something that's probably on the verge to doing a flip flop and becoming like Iran. One of my I'm a teacher, one of the, one of my colleagues, she's Iranian, she was saying that she feared that Turkey would flip flop and have a an Islamic head step up. Why do you think that is? Why because obviously you've prayed a lot for Turkey and for the yeah. Lord to reveal himself. Um, do you think this could be a precursor that maybe they needed to buy into Islam totally before they realized it's empty and then then open to the Lord? Or what, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, this is this is exactly what happened in Iran. They're the 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 biggest churches in Turkey are actually uh, Iranian churches, mm-hmm. Muslims that have rejected Islam and turned to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's my feeling too. In the cases where you've seen big uh, revivals among the, in the Islamic population coming to Christ, it's been like Indonesia between sixty-five and and uh, and eighty, eighty-five, and then in Iran. Um, Talking I, about nineteen sixty-five to nineteen sixty-five, nineteen eighty-five, two million Muslims came to the Lord in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, Iran, there's like no real counts, uh, but there's been like they have a Iran is a Protestant bishop. He, he represents the Protestant community to the Iranian government. And um, Haik, I knew Haik, and he got martyred. And then the two guys, the predecessors before him, the first two also got martyred. And usually from— Now, my, who is Haik? He was the uh, third uh, Protestant bishop in Iran to get martyred. Really? Yeah. Um, and f- from what I've seen, it's when you have this heavy-duty Islamic pr- uh, oppression where there was once freedom— that people understand that there's a choice, and then and then they and then they convert. Mm-hmm. So my thinking is in Turkey, in some time in the near future, five years, ten years, that we'll see something will crack because there's been a lot of seeds sowed in Turkey. I mean, mm-hmm. there's been people in the modern era, modern mission era, that have been Protestants on the ground since the early '60s, and it's really ramped up quite a bit. Like as as we as I was coming back to Phoenix to put my kids to school. A lot more people were coming in. A lot more resources were going in. There was more oppression coming back from the government, of course. There's still a missionary in jail in Izmir, I think. But um, uh, if you're going to reap, you've got to sow, and sometimes that means giving up your life. That's just the way. And we're ministering in the Islamic world. That seems to be one of the things. Somebody's got to be willing to put their life on the line is what you're saying. Yeah. Which is a huge commitment. But, you know, the Muslims do it, don't they? They put their life on the line for the deception they believe in. Oh, yeah. They blow themselves up in the hopes of getting something in the afterlife, Mm -hmm. which is really tragic. George, what has your heart told you about the condition of the people in Turkey? How long did you live there? And, And what were some of the ways that the Lord used you to bring the gospel to the people? Well, we lived in the area for 16 years. We were in Turkey for 12 and in the Bulgaria for four, but we always worked in the Turkish-speaking populations, which mm-hmm. meant Kurds and anybody that spoke Turkish. 
And uh, and explain to our listeners the distinction between the Kurds and the Turks or the Kurds and the Iraqis or the Kurds and the Iranians. Uh you can have a country, it's like America, we have our prom, pre- predominant language is English. In Turkey, the predominant language is Turkish because the, mo- the majority population, when we say majority, we're only talking like 51% here, is Turkish. In Turkey, it's more like 65% Turkish. But you have this other minority people group that's about 25 million in Turkey, the Kurds. And they've actually been in Turkey since... Uh, some people trace the Kurds back to one of the sons of Noah because Mount Ararat and Noah's Ark is there. And, and Noah. They've been a distinct people group, distinct from the Turks, for thousands of years is what you're saying. Yeah, probably 4,000 years. The Turks came actually came into the area late. They came probably about four or 500 A.D. They, they, they came in from Central Asia, and they swept in, and the Ottoman Empire— um, was formed about 900 A.D. So the, but the Kurds have been around for a long, long time. Why is it that the Kurds have never had their own uh, nation? There's uh, parts of Kurdistan in Iraq and Iran and Turkey, but none of those nations have ever granted them autonomy. Yeah. Um, the, the Kurds are uh, the great people. I love the Kurds. Uh, they're very clannish. They're very tribal. Um, until recently, but they've been nomadic, semi-nomadic, where you'd have your winter uh, grazing areas down in the south for the grass, and the summers they go up to the mountains. So th- there a lot of there wasn't a lot of central kinds of leadership. Okay, so that's part of it. Is they were more poor. They weren't as established. They weren't building cities. They were more nomadic. They weren't building big cities and. Developing infrastructure. Yeah, no, they're, a, they're a primitive. Yeah, it's a, it's more of a more of a, of a of a primitive basic kind of a culture. I mean, it's it's a nice culture, but it's not it's not super high technology. They've never built anything. You know. What is it about them that you love? Um, they're not quitters. Mm-hmm. And I'm I mean, and and being a ranger, it's just like everybody's. You just don't quit. You just keep mm-hmm. getting back up, and the courage just keep getting back up. Mm-hmm. You knock them down. You gas them, you blow them up, they get back up. They just keep on going. Just keep on rolling, you know. I just posted a thing on Facebook of this uh, Kurdish girl that got went to, to Denmark as a, as a refugee, as a girl. And she had a job in Denmark and a life, and she just, like, packed it up, went down to Kurdistan, enlisted in the military, and trained uh, girls how to be snipers. And then she went back to and then she went back to and then and then when her her time was up she went back to Denmark and then the, then the, the government said you can't go back and do that again. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's the kind of people that they are. So very very and that's that's the the up that's the upside and the downside because they're very proud. Uh huh. Very proud people. So do you think they'll ever um, have their own homeland, where that they're internationally recognized? They de facto have one because we supported in northern Iraq. Um, but as far as the for because of geopolitical reasons, like with the they, America, t- America and Turkey are in the, are in NATO together. Uh, we get our oil from the Saudis, and we have this r- security relationship with them. Nobody wants the Kurds to have their own country. Mm-hmm. That's that's not happening. So um, they, they do have a GDP to do it, though. They do uh-huh. have, they, they do have the gross domestic product to pull off a country, and they probably have the leadership now to pull it off. But I don't know. 
Are they able to get visas? Like you said, that girl went to Denmark. Was she in Denmark under a Turkish visa? Or what's the visa that allows her to travel? She was an Iraqi, and then she went as a refugee. Okay. Yeah. And, and you, see, you see a lot of refugees even here in Phoenix. And they come, and, and they've, been, they've been vetted and sponsored by, by UNHCR and, and groups like that. So when they, they've probably helped the American government in some way. Like one of my teachers, he was a translator. Two of my teachers, actually, were translators for American Special Forces in Iraq. One, one's a Kurd. He's working on his mm-hmm. Ph.D., and then the other one is he's teaching, he's, and he's an Arab. And you say you're teachers because you're leading a program at ASU. Yeah. You want to tell us about that? Okay. Um, I'm a supervisor uh, at, a, at the Intensive English Program at Arizona State University, mm-hmm. and we uh, bring the English level up of incoming international students so that they can be successful in our uh, regular mainstream programs. Super. My guest is George Bellis. He's had a very interesting missionary career. Stay tuned to Koinonia. I'm Mark Buckley. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Coin and E. I'm Mark Buckley from Living Streams. My guest is George Bellis. George, give us some background of, about what the Lord's doing and some of the uh, ways that you and other missionaries have been reaching into the Kurdish and Turkish populations with the gospel. Well, in the, in the beginning and up to the modern era, uh, you've been able to do more in Turkey than probably other countries. Uh, because of the mixed population between Turks and Christians. So um, the Bible Correspondence Course has been a big one where you run like little ads and papers and stuff. Have you ever read the Bible? And people write into it. And um, I did follow up on that for years, and I used to follow up the uh, inquirers in the eastern part of the country because it's it's like 15 to a 20-hour bus ride one way to get out there, and then you're in the villages and the mountains and stuff, and it wasn't super popular, so I took it. And... um, then as time went on, uh, radio uh, was freed from the uh, national government in Turkey, and a friend of mine got a uh, license for his radio station. Hmm. And I started developing uh, English second language uh, educational programs for him, and they still play on his radio station. It's called, really? Yeah, it's called Good News, yeah. So you're basically teaching Kurds to speak English or Turks? Turks, Kurds, yeah. Whoever. Yeah. And the it, the signal ranges from uh, north Germany down uh, all of Turkey, and I think the bottom of it t- touches the, 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 the top of North Africa. You're kidding. It's a huge—how powerful is the signal? It's pretty, it's pretty powerful now. But when we started, it was like literally— like one small room, 
and he had the window open, the antenna sticking out, and it was me and Mustafa making radio shows together. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He's, reti- so, he's retired now, though. <laughs> have you gotten much response over the years from the radio program? Yeah, we get a lot of positive feedback on it. I mean, there's other, there's, there's direct Christian programming. There's educational things. Um, we call it love in action, giving people um, things that they need to to be to survive or to be successful. And English as a second language is always a, it's a big plus when you're working overseas. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, people come from Japan to Turkey and they speak English. The Chinese come, they speak English. The Germans speak English. So English, well, I mean, people don't realize what a tremendous benefit we have in the world today that English is the language. And that's why it's so Absolutely. important that our economy stays strong and because it makes people want to continue to learn English as a common denominator, huh? Yeah. As, as a country, we need to, uh, we need to maintain our, our leadership uh, authority and position because the other options are just completely unacceptable. Right, right. Then we're isolated. What, what has your experience been at ASU in terms of student enrollment from foreign nations um, since our election? Well, uh, since the election, uh, some of the, the, inter- the new incoming international uh, student population has gone down. Um, but it, it's really not – a lot of it has to do with geopolitics, you know, scholarships and stuff like that. Um, the, the president's uh, election – lead up to the election was rather uh, uh, flamboyant, and that was, that's kind of hard on internationals because they don't really um, – It scares them, doesn't it? Yeah, they, they don't understand our system and how it works, and and so it and even though a lot of Americans don't really kind of get the whole our, how our political system works, so I understand why they were kind of like scared off. But um, since he's become president, things things have gotten better, and I think the Chinese will be coming in here in the summer, and more of the Arabs and stuff will be will become will be coming back to school. So, um, how important is it for believers to reach out to international students and visitors? Uh, this is. Like your God, God's gift to you. You don't have to go halfway around the world. I mean, I have uh, I have students that have never had dinner with an American family. They've never gone to an American's house. And they've lived here for years. Some three, of them, four, right? or five years. Nobody's ever invited them over. No, and the only people that they've seen are their, are American college students. Mm-hmm. Not your best testimony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was sarcasm. So, <laughs> tell us about some of your friendship with these students. Uh, as as a teacher, it's a little it's it's a little complicated. You have mm-hmm. to be kind of careful with them. Um, right now, I've got uh, eleven Indonesians. They're Christians. They come from uh, West Papua, which is uh, southern Indonesia, and um, that's part of the group before that I said came to the Lord back in the sixties and the seventies. And um, so they're here on scholarship uh, for five years, and most of them are going to become pilots. How did they get the scholarships? It was a it was a, a provincial scholarship. There's a big from their government. From their government. Because the region has semi-autonomy. Mm-hmm. So they've given, they select the best students they can find, and then they send them to the states. That's wonderful. So one of my students, uh, one of these boys, he was in my management class, and um, he did a presentation on a MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship, mm-hmm. and explained the structure and, and how it all worked and uh, how, it, how it, w- it was vitally important to their society because... They didn't have a lot of roads, and the airplanes were like ambulances. So if somebody yeah. was critically ill, you call up MAF. MAF flies in, loads the stretcher on, flies them out. Wow. Saves their life then, huh? Yeah. One of the boys has been in the hospital 
four times in one year with malaria. Wow. Yeah. So in situations like that, you, uh, those kinds of good works ministries are super critical for um, those Christian societies that are poorer and they, that they need our help. And it's a positive testimony to the non-believing uh, population as well, because Indonesia is actually Muslim, Hindu, and and Christian. Yeah. So it's a pos- it's a it's a positive witness because you don't see Saudi Arabia doesn't have a version of MAF down there helping Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know? So a lot of people think, well, I'd like to do missions, but I've got a wife, I've got kids, or whatever. What kind of influence ha- did you find that? your missionary years had on your children? Well, um, my daughter's in the ministry now with Navigators. She loves Jesus with all her heart. Yeah, she loves the Lord. Um, She's been with Navigators a couple years now, Mm -hmm. and and she's getting married in April, and she's going to marry a guy, and they're going to be in in the ministry together there. And then when my son graduated from high school, he went back to Turkey for a year with uh, Operation Mobilization. So he still loved Turkey and loved yeah. that culture and everything. Yeah. So he's um, you, you've had you've had kids. Kids are very different. So my son's a musician, and then they did a lot of street outreach and um, with music. So he's an upright bass player, plays all kinds of instruments, rides a unicycle. So they they did a lot of tours like through Eastern Europe, Turkey. Mm-hmm. They went to Egypt and did street outreaches and stuff like that. So um, that's kind of his that's kind of his thing. And then he's involved in his local, he lives in Tucson, and he's in, involved with the uh, youth ministry at his local church center in Tucson. So it really gave your son and daughter uh, international perspective and a, a passion to serve the Lord then. It didn't scar him, wound him, or uh, make him culturally isolated, did it? No, not at all. I mean, th- as a father, that was my greatest fear. It's like, Oh my! What have I done to my children? <laughs> right, to put them in this environment. You know. Well, not just that environment; it's all the coming and going and support raising yeah. and random living in random places and wondering if you're going to have enough money to live on and all that kind of business. You know, and you wonder like, what did I do to my kids? And in, in the end, because I trusted the Lord and followed the Lord, they turned out just fine. Mm-hmm. They're different. Um, they're not exactly Americans. They're not exactly Turkish. Mm-hmm. You know, their 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 view of politics and life is is a little different. You know, do they speak any Turkish? Oh yeah, they went to Turkish school. They were homeschooled some, mm-hmm. and then they went to a Turkish school for a while, and then they they ended up in the uh, international school. Wow! Yeah. So they they haven't been around for a while. They could probably pick it back up. About about like me, as the f- longer you're away, it just kind of fades away. So, um, so what would you recommend to people who feel a tug, like Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? What would you recommend to people in terms of how they could get inroads into missions or develop their God-given gifts or, or allow the Lord to use them in a cross-cultural way? Well, for most American Christians, I would say first you have to get over the cross-cultural hurdle, and that would be getting used to being around internationals. And it doesn't have to be some exotic target group like the Kurds. Um, growing up in Arizona as a as a white kid, I mean, I, I was around a lot of Hispanics, and they were like the first generation to speak English. Their grandparents mm-hmm. still spoke Spanish. Just getting used to the other cultures, appreciating the other cultures, the pros and the cons. And you look at your own culture and see it's like, well, not everything in my culture is all that wonderful either. And then and understand that, but God uses my culture. God uses their certain things in their culture. 
Um, yeah, so start with something easy like that and then just kind of branch out and see how the Lord leads you. There's lots of groups around town that do um, outreach to the uh, inter- to the incoming refugee population. They supply them with beds and because people come here with nothing. They have their suitcases and that's it. They don't have any drapes or furniture or even a bed to sleep on. So things like that, you know, just get involved in those groups and just get used to the whole cross-cultural aspect of it. Unless you have a skill like, you know, like you're a pilot or you've got some high-level technical skill that a mission agency might want, like computer skills are big these days. So they really need people like that. Um, George, because of your work at ASU, you've also worked with a lot of Chinese students. And most Chinese students nowadays are um, students that are single child in the family. Yeah. What has that been like? What what kind of influence has the one-child policy had in terms of the socialization of the Chinese people? Uh, they don't really – they're used to being alone. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of interesting because when you're trying to get people – integrate someone into a society and they don't really need you. They don't feel like they need to be around other people much. No, not even – I mean they slowly – start congregating together because somebody else speaks Chinese and they can help them. Then they start talking to the other Chinese students. So you find like groups of Chinese students and stuff. And they, you'll find around the Tempe campus, you'll find there's a, a block of them that live in a certain area. Yeah. So they're just not your typical rowdy uh, party socialization kind of like a typical American kid, huh? No, they could sit down and memorize 30 pages. Wow. Yeah, I'm jealous. (laughs) My uh, guest is George Bellis. He's a professor at ASU. He's also been a missionary for many years. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of Koinonia. Welcome back to Koinonia. I'm Mark Buckley. My guest, George Bellis, has lived in the Middle East and uh, traveled. You, George, you've traveled in Iraq and Kurdistan and, and Turkey. What's it like over there, and what's changed since America invaded Iraq? Well, now you have, in northern Iraq, you have a, you have a de facto Kurdistan. It's not a legal state or anything. But um, after the first Gulf War back in uh, 90, 91, uh, we provided America provided the uh, cover for the Kurdish people to be, to be safe from the uh, Saddam Hussein, who mm-hmm. was still trying to destroy it at that point. Made a no fly zone and that sort yeah, of no, no fly zone, <clears throat> and then you. So every day, why was he attacking them? They weren't a big threat, or did he think they wanted independence and that was the threat? They supported us during the <clears throat> Gulf War. Okay, they they were big. They were big supporters. They were our eyes and ears on the ground because they were in Iraqi society. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the difference when you look at a Turk versus an Iraqi versus a Kurd? If they're if they're pretty much of a pure lineage, yeah, I can tell the difference. But they've intermarried so much; it's like walking around in Phoenix. It's like, 
you know, you've got a Mexican. to tell who's who. Yeah, you've got a Mexican father and a white mother and blah, 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 back and forth. So you can't really tell who's who sometimes. Their society is kind of morphed like, like ours has. So, um, but uh, we went to Iraq, right? Uh, I was a Fulbright scholar, and it was the end of Ramadan. And then they have like a 10-day holiday afterwards. It's kind of like, you know, Christmas. So uh, Karen and I volunteered with uh, Doctors Without Borders and went across the went across, uh, went down to the southeastern Turkey and worked, worked in the refugee camps because we spoke uh, Turkish, and we did the logistical supply chain for uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders. Um, and, that's how we, and, and that's how we got started as far as going into Iraq. And over the years, we just start, we kept going more and more into Iraq and then sent Bibles across, got Bibles printed in Turkey, in Kurdish, shipped them across the border, got them distributed, did a couple of Jesus films, dubbings. Um, that's the Gospel of Luke on mm-hmm. film. And then I got it shown on television in 95, 96. And then because Northern Iraq does have Christians, mm-hmm. they showed it, they showed it uh, every Christmas for quite a few years. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it got pretty, um, pretty good distribution. A lot of the country could see it if they tuned in. It was the first, it was the first film that was ever dubbed into Kurdish in, in the Iraqi dialect. Wow. So it was very, very popular. It's super high quality because Campus Crusade is, they have refined it to mm-hmm. an art. So it was it was seen by quite a few people. And it was the, the beginning for church planning uh, in northern Iraq. And now there's quite a few small congregations in northern Iraq because everybody's aware of who Jesus, Jesus is. is now. Before, it was the, the Muslim understanding of Jesus just being another prophet. And they hadn't really had people up there preaching the gospel to them, huh? Mm, there, missions coming, missions in the Middle East come and go quite a bit. So there have been missionaries around, but the survival rate back in the old days was low. Because they'd get killed or just driven out? Uh, a lot of times they would just work themselves to death, mm-hmm. literally work themselves to death. Because you get in these situations and there's so much need and you just give and give and give. And people, without, it's not the 21st century, we're talking like the 19th century, uh-huh. people would just work themselves to death or they would get, you know, they get pneumonia, which now is curable, and then you would die back mm-hmm. in the day. A lot of these kinds of things. So missionaries would go out in their 20s and they might work, they, a good career would be like 10 years and you're dead. Really? Yeah. So it's very, very, very short life expectancy. So there was no, it's a very resistant population. So um, are they resistant because they really love the culture they've got? Or the religion they've got, or they're afraid that if they break free, they're going to have major repercussions. What, what's the resistance come from? Uh, part of it is societal, like you said. Um, I try to explain Islam to people like it's a Turkish carpet. You've got the warp and the waff. You've got the 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 the, the vertical and the um, and the horizontal mm-hmm. bars that you that the nap of your carpet is woven onto. And when you pull on one, you pull on all of them. So to try to remove one, it's like pulling on the carpet on the floor here. Try to try to pull one out, it's a virtually impossible task. So um, there's that, and then uh, Islam as a religion is uh, very oppressive. The call to prayer is five times a day. It starts 30 minutes before sunrise, and the last one is 30 minutes after sunset. So it's constant brainwashing, boom, 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 all day long. Even in Turkey, where you, it's a pretty mod- moderate population. There's that, the constant, there is no God, but Allah and Muhammad is prophet, blah, 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 over and over and over again. So they don't really, thinking about other options is never cross the radar screen. Mm-hmm. 
so there is a very, very challenging uh, place. So what are the refugee camps like? Well, a typical refugee camp, when they first start up, is just a disaster because I mean, that's what it, that that that's what's going on. It, it's it's a natural disaster. So so basically, what is it? Just like a field with a fence around it, or something? There's not even a there's not even a fence. When we were in Camp One, we were at the most southern camp, and we had about a hundred thousand people, and they had literally just walked about fifty miles over the mountains in the spring mud in the snow. And they just had plastic, and they had just, like, set up tents in the mud in the plastic, and they were cutting down every tree to get wood, and everybody had diarrhea, and it was just... So were they just on a field or on an open hillside, and were they they curds? They were on a mountainside. It's just like, uh, envision the the Rocky Mountains, only you've got, the Kurds are just, like, pushed up the mountains with with the Turkish military, like, right there, not letting them come into Turkey. They just stopped them right there. Where were they uh, fleeing from and where were they hoping to go to? They were fleeing from Saddam Hussein. When we, uh, during the first uh, Gulf War under uh, George H. Bush, the Kurds supported us. And then uh, Saddam Hussein, after we drove him out of of Kuwait, he uh, went north because they had rebelled. Uh, and supported America, and he drove his tanks into Kurdistan and started blowing up towns, so the entire population just packed up and went to Turkey. But they walked. They literally walked over the mountains through the snow, and they walked into Turkey, but Turkey didn't want them there. So the Turkish government sent their military and blocked the border so that the refugees were literally on top of the mountains in the middle of nowhere. Were they dying up there? Oh, yeah. I have. I don't know if I have any, any more pictures, but, yeah, people, like I said before, People were just like dying of diarrhea. I had I had shovels and I had a work crew and I'm trying to set up hospital tents and people would steal my shovels to d- go dig graves. We're really? trying to set up you know le- uh, trench latrines like old school army latrines, and we just can't dig fast enough. People steal your tools and go off and go off and bury somebody. Like constant really? crying and that Muslim thing where they go like that. Like it just went on and on. And then finally, um, the American government came in. Uh, Doctors Without Borders was there. Uh, finally, the American Special Forces showed up, and then they came in, and they uh, they cut a landing pad up there and um, started uh, airlifting in the, the equipment that we needed, set up a water depot and all that. And they did all, like, within 36 hours. It was like boom, boom, boom. Wow. All the medics were up there, so the, the, the doctors were supplemented by world-class Special Forces medics, which are just as good as most ER emergency room doctors. And... Um, so then, but at a certain point, though, uh, the American government. A few days later, we sent our our A10s uh, and drove Saddam out of northern Iraq, and then the Kurds started going back to their homes and stuff. Because if they'd have stayed there, they all would have died. Because it's just freezing cold up in those mountains, huh? It's cold. It's wet, and you've got uh, the, the whole diarrhea aspect. Because they don't use toilet paper; they use water, and there's no water, so they're wiping with their hands. And they're giving feces in their mouth. So then you get like typhoid and all kinds of nasty. All, all the diseases you thought were dead from history are alive and well, given the right situation. Wow, that is brutal, huh? Yeah. So then, once my grant ended, we started getting involved, and uh, I was the country director for Northwest Medical Teams for Turkey, and I ran uh, medical supplies and surgical teams down to Kurdistan every three months. So I, I was in Istanbul, and I did all the logistics and handled all the bureaucracy. Because as a Fulbright scholar, I knew most of the Turkish 
foreign ministry from cocktail parties and stuff. So then I would translate, you know, deal with the bureaucratic issues and send surgical teams. We did that for four years into northern Iraq. So what does it mean to be a Fulbright scholar? How did, how did you become one and what did it provide for you? How do you become a Fulbright scholar? Um, you have to be at you have to be at the top of your profession and recognized uh, as your colleagues as being one of the leaders in your profession. And so, then you apply. It's after college that you're applying for this. Or? Uh, there's two kinds. There's junior scholars, which you can apply as a senior in in college, mm-hmm. and then they um, you'll study for a year. Um, being a Fulbright scholar is like being a Nobel laureate or a Rhodes scholar or something like that, but it's for college teachers. And you're either top in your field in research or in teaching. And in my case, back when I uh, applied for my, my position, I was both. And then so I uh, helped uh, set up the English program at a political science faculty. They had me get in there and uh, work with the director. So basically they paid you to do that for a year? Or is that what it was? Two years, yeah. Two years. Two years. It's a grant. Yeah, it's, it's a grant. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I won the grant and got the position. I did that for two years. And then uh, but part of that is you're working for the American government. So then you, they're required to have social functions. So the American diplomats would invite me to their parties with the, with the Turks. So I got to know everybody in the Turkish ministry. Really? Did you enjoy that? Oh, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was it was it was a good two years. It was a it was a limited work schedule because they had me, they'd have me and a couple of others fly out to different universities and get, mm-hmm. give seminars on education and stuff like that. You know, do different projects to to build up the local education system. So, do you love to read? Oh yeah, you're yeah. a big reader, huh? Yes. What kind of books do you like to read? Oh, what do I like to read? Have you read anything recently that has really struck you? Oh, apart from my Bible. <laughs> I would say read your Bible every day first. Um, I like the chronological method where you're reading through a, a, actually how the events occur. That's my uh-huh. that's my preference for reading. And then um, who else do I like to read? Uh, mostly I read old stuff. Classics, huh? I read classics because I, I, I figure if it's been around for 100 years... And it's still in print. It's still still probably a pretty good book. I'm the other extreme. I read the newspaper, two newspapers every day. (laughs) Stay tuned. I'm Mark Buckley, and we're going to be talking to George Bellis when we come back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Buckley from Living Streams. If you ever want to reach us at Living Streams, you can go to the corner of Central and Glendale in Phoenix for one of our services on Sunday morning, or you can look us up on the web at livingstreams.org. My guest is George Bellis. He's been involved in missions and ministry, and I think you always will be one way or another, right, George? Absolutely. That's what I'm called to do. What would you call your listeners to do in terms of developing their gifts and talents and serving God? Uh, start at home with your uh, if you're if you're a husband you know leading your family in devotionals praying for your kids praying for your wife 
um, being involved in your local uh, congregation um, in a home group or a small group or something like that, learning how to uh, get involved in that, learning how to lead one, um, just stepping up, to, stepping up to the plate. Um, the challenging part in our society is everybody's just so busy. Yeah. And that's where you have to set priorities and say, what's more important to me in the long run? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we understand that we're going to be around forever. And it's like, do does it really matter how big my house is or how nice a vacation I had, mm-hmm. or what schools my my kids went to? Not really, because mm-hmm. ultimately, it's what I taught my kids at home. My praying for my kids, my having a relationship with my kids, not what school I sent them to. So, um, yeah, like that. Just if you're the leader, start leading with people that you've got, and then and then and then work your way up as God gives you and the opportunities come you know amen and amen well i want to commend you george for putting your life on the line serving the lord with all your heart and i also want to thank you for being my guest here today thank you mark my guest has been george bellis i'm mark buckley and i hope that you'll be using your gifts and your talents for the lord that's the way you find joy in life loving your brothers serving god and um, just saying okay lord i'm gonna use this gifts and talents any way I possibly can. And as you do, you'll grow and you'll find creative ways to plant seeds for the kingdom. You'll reap eternal life. I'm Mark Buckley. I want to thank you for being with us today on Koinonia. God bless you.